Welcome to Interchange. I'm Doug Storm. It's March 24th, 2020, and our show is Of Pandemics and Panopticons. We open with Spring, performed by Winston Mankuku Ngozi. Today we look at the local effects of COVID-19 in and around the major cities of Italy. And then we'll widen our view to try to see the socio-political impacts of governmentality in the face of a crisis like a pandemic. Using both lenses, we hope to find a focus that often escapes us when confronting the global and seemingly diffuse catastrophe of climate disruption in the Capitalocene, out of which this novel coronavirus comes. Last week, we discussed positions on separation with philosopher Frederic Nayar. One can support social distancing while choosing to be against the separations brought by scapegoating others and deploying divisive politics. Nera suggests the most important separation can be the one we make from the current capitalist, economic, and ideological systems that have brought us this virus. Today we consider a related notion, abandonment. This is another term freighted with contradictions. In the great essay circles, Emerson tells us that the one thing which we seek with insatiable desire is to forget ourselves and to do something without knowing how or why. In short, to draw a new circle. The way of life is wonderful. It is by abandonment. Some of us have long been abandoned. New groups will now be abandoned. Some of us will choose abandonment. And some will find new and different chains around our necks and ankles. There's no going back. Let the golden age begin. Our guests today are Andrea Sicarelli and Ian Allen Paul. Andrea Sicarelli is Provost Professor of French and Italian at Indiana University. His work focuses on the concepts of migration, exile, and borders in Italian literature and culture. Sicarelli is from Rome, where his brother and his family live, and he has relatives in the Milan area, two of whom are doctors who've been battling the disease. Ian Allen Paul is an artist and theorist whose work examines instantiations of power and practices of resistance in global contexts. We begin with Andrea Sicarelli on what's happening in Italy by way of his home in Bloomington, Indiana, via the social distancing option of internet communication tools. And now, of pandemics and panopticons, an interchange on WFHB. First of all, the two areas that were hit so hard at the beginning were the Veneto region, the region of Venice, the Veneto, and the Lombardy, the region of Milan, which are extremely industrial. And uh, there is a high-density population. In Lombardy, there are about 11 million inhabitants, and uh, in a relatively uh, small, uh, in terms of square kilometers, square miles, in relatively small regions in terms of size, basically, it would be bigger than Indiana. In fact, it's probably smaller in terms of square mileage. And so that, of course, it's easy, it's fav- you know, it favors uh, the uh, contagion. It's a little bit like why there are more cases in New York than in, sure. in the Midwest, in a sense, or why more cases in Chicago than in rural Illinois. Because, of course, in a city-like environment, uh, people live in apartment buildings, people go to work, take the subway, take the buses, and so on and so forth. So I think that makes perfect sense. Also, business-related, I think uh, travels with to and from China kept going until uh, February when the government blocked them. And so, of course, again, from that point of view, it might have been too late in terms of if that was a source of the contagion. So I'm not surprised that it happened there. Uh, there are, I also read very recently 
an article published by on the website of Oxford University, which, of course, can be also uh, ironic or paradoxical, but uh, they say, of course, the Italian uh, have close families and they tend to live close to each other, grandparents, families, and this and that. Grandparents take care of children and so on and so forth. So it could have been also a reason for which is spread more than in Northern Europe. Now, of course, I think this is a little bit uh, stereotypical, of course, because Italian families have changed a lot in Italy. It's more important is to say that Italy has a rather elderly population. And this is probably something that outside of the world, in, in outside of Italy, people don't know. Italy is the country in Europe, together with France, which has the highest uh, population of 65 and older. And so, and Spain. And it's not a coincidence that Spain is also very hit, of course. And so, of course, 65 and older, that means that uh, uh, if people get a virus that causes pneumonia, you have more people in intensive care, you have more people uh, who could die, and so on and so forth. Just to give you an example, I was just checking this yesterday. The Chinese population is twice younger than the Italian population. That is, there is 50% less 65 and older in China than there is that that are in Italy. And so that, of course, explains why there are so many people who ended up hospitalized and so many people who died in regards to the uh, contagion. The other thing, in Italy, there is public health, as in most European countries and European countries in most of the world, including Canada, as we know. People are used a lot to go to hospitals or doctors or, you know, clinics to get checked up. And so what happened is that in Italy, there were many more, the the testing has been uh, spread. So just to give you an example, as of yesterday in the United States, there were less than 30,000 tested throughout the entire United States. And with 30,000 people tested, we have almost 10,000, 9,000 and something. I was just checking the Johns Hopkins site. More than 9,000 uh, people tested positive. In Italy, we had over 150,000 people tested. Mm. And so 35,000 to 150,000, 9,000 to 30,000, you can see that the proportion is is there. So in Italy, people have been tested because you go to, to the hospital, you go to and, you know, it's public health and they do it. They don't ask you for insurance or they don't mm-hmm. have to ask permission to the state uh, health office and so on and so forth. It's a different system. I'm not saying it's better. I'm just saying <laughs> that it's different. So more people are, are being tested. And uh, outside of China is the country where most people have been tested. I'll give you an example. I have a few friends who have been sick in these past few days in Italy. So they told me exactly what happened to them. Uh, one of them had uh, just a, a low fever in uh, Celsius. It, would be, it was 37.5. 98.6 is 37 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. So 37 is 98.6. What would be the beginning of a temperature in, in, in Fahrenheit? And so she had only 37.5, which is a low fever, but she had cough. The two things together could be, of course, a symptom and uh, so she called in the number, one of the regional and national numbers or local numbers that they give to call in if you have it, not to go to the emergency room, not to infect other people. And she has been put on a national, on a local registry, on a national registry. And uh, every six hours, she received a phone call to check to see whether or not her temperature had gone up or down mm. and so on and so forth. The next day, her temperature was down, so they decided that she didn't have to be tested. Uh, had it been had the temperature been steady for 48 hours or had gone up within 24 hours, they would have sent somebody home to test her or they would have asked her if she could go out and so on and so forth to go to specific centers to be tested. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Of Pandemics and Panopticons. 
And our guest for this segment is Andrea Segarelli, a professor at Indiana University who has relatives who are doctors in the Milan area and whose brother and family live in Rome, Italy. This is something that has been rather systematic beginning with uh, uh, the early March. And it is not so nationally, uh, I mean, it is not so systematic nationwide. Of course, nationwide, for instance, of course, we know that within Italy, the south of Italy has been less hit by the disease because it started in the north, but testing is also much less uh, mm-hmm. spread. So, for instance, if I give you an example in the Naples area, Campania, the region of Naples, Naples, which is a very, uh, lots of inhabitants in that area, and Naples is the third city of Italy in terms of size, um, Rome, Milan, and Naples. So in the Naples area, only 2,600 people have been tested, 2,600, as of yesterday, 2,600 people and 460 tested positive. Of course, they are farther away from the area, but people traveled at the beginning Mm -hmm. before there was an entire shutdown of the country. So there may be people who went there and, you know, they may have it and so on and so forth. So, of course, 2,600 people have been tested in in, in Naples versus in uh, Lombardy, in Milan, for... 48,900, that is almost 50,000 people. So you can see the difference. Yeah, I noticed or I'd read, uh, you know, there had been uh, sort of a leak on the lockdown to the Lombardy region. And so people had tried to to escape it uh, before the lockdown came and traveled south at that point. So gathering in in public transit uh, and then heading south. Yeah, many students uh, from the south studying in the north, especially in the Milan or Turin areas. So for instance, if you want technical things like engineering or architecture, but also sciences, medical school, Many people travel, tra- you know, go north. And so many, many students went back or many workers who actually work in, in the north in the industry that have been closed because of the shutdown went back to the south in the first weekend in which there was a national shutdown. There were no cases, for instance, in Apulia or in Calabria, the very south of Italy or Sicily. And then suddenly within a few days after this traveling we began, you know, seeing cases. So, for instance, now in Apulia, there are 383 cases as of yesterday, 19 people dead. Of these 383 cases, 156 are hospitalized. Because, of course, in these numbers, what really counts is how many people are just lighter symptoms. And uh, like if they got the flu, of course, and how many people instead develop the respiratory illness and the pneumonia because the danger of coronavirus, of course, that you can get bilateral and that, of course, it's uh, for, yeah. for, for elderly people, it's a death sentence. So for people who have heart condition or something. It's yeah. So one of the things to stress, uh, I guess, in terms of public information is this statistic of hospitalized yeah, and uh, that yes. this is the real issue that we're going to be dealing with is the the fact of uh, not being able to hospitalize uh, the 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 numbers of people that end up getting to that level of sickness. Mm-hmm. In uh, Lombardy, most doctors have made no mysteries. It's on all the news that in this past few days, they had to make choices. Uh, they had to decide who they would attach to a respirator or not, because, of course, there are so, only so many respirators in an hospital. And so in certain areas, especially in smaller hospitals, smaller regional hospitals, especially in the province of Bergamo, Lodi, and uh, Cremona, where there are good regional hospitals, like it would be comparable to Bloomington Hospital or, or even bigger, um, but um, but they're not Milan, of course, or Rome. And so uh, they're usually 
they, they, they didn't expect something like that. So they don't have so many. They had to make uh, painful choices. And so between a 75-year-old in good shape, we know previous ailments uh, and somebody, I don't know, with diabetes, they probably attached the one without diabetes because they thought they were wasting an occasion, mm-hmm. unfortunately. So these are painful choices that have been made that uh, I'm sure they, have, they might have caused some of the uh, some of the debt, uh, the debt toll to go up, and I'm sure these things happen anywhere that where sure. this, the, the virus is really spreading. So right now, for instance, I can tell you the numbers. In Italy, there are uh, about more than 14,000 people recover with coronavirus in hospitals in Italy in the entire nation. Of these 14,000, over 11,000 are in the north, especially in Lombardy, Veneto, and the Turin, Piedmont region, but mostly Lombardy, Veneto. And then about uh, 2,200 are in intensive care. Uh, the rest are at home uh, with flu-like symptoms without right. uh, pneumonia and so on and so right. forth. Uh, some uh, cases with very high fever and some cases just with life. It's time for a break. This is Ahmad Jamal with I Remember Italy. More on COVID-19 in Italy when Interchange returns on WFHB. Back to Interchange on WFHB. Our show is of pandemics and panopticons. We continue with guest Indiana University Provost Professor of French and Italian, Andrea Sicarelli, about life in Italy, as the tally of confirmed COVID-19 cases this morning is over 63,000, with deaths now exceeding 6,000. Well, I mean, the lockdown is very... uh... Theoretically, it's very simple. It's basically only necessary, uh, um, you know, only stores that offer necessary goods can be opened. So grocery stores, obviously supermarkets. Uh, people can go out only unless they have, unless they can leave the other person or the other people at home alone because they need help because they are children or because they are people who cannot be left alone for whatever reasons. They People can go out uh, possibly no more than twice a week alone one person only from a group, from a, a family, to go uh, to shopping, to go grocery shopping or pharmacy. So pharmacies, um, post offices, banks, and the banks have to do, you know, they have to, um, they are open, uh, pe- people are working at different time of the day, so they are open longer, but also there is no contact. About 60% of transportation has been shut down, uh, theoretically, and I say theoretically because we know the rules are made to be broken. <laughs> so <laughs> theoretically, uh, in trains, only one every other three seats can be occupied on a train or a bus or something. This you need to leave two empty seats between two passengers to leave the fatidical five, six feet of different distance between one person and another. 
everybody should wear gloves and a mask, not so much because the mask will prevent you, but because, of course, if you are in line and you sneeze, and a sneeze, it can happen, you know, uh, at least you don't sneeze towards another person. If you sneeze within yourself, and if you're not sick, it's fine. And if you're already sick, in any case, you already had it. (laughs) Of course, all these things are not, I mean, it's impossible to control them so much. So yesterday, there was a crackdown on... And the violation for this in Italy is rather light. In a sense, people can be fined 205 euros for violating this or get up to three months of prison. Uh, but I mean, they are, um, they are writing violation. They are citing people, hmm. you know, that will have to be fined. And this, of course, goes back to, is this really necessary or not? Is this, uh, so now, for instance, uh, they are telling people not to go out and run, even if they run in the park and they don't run into each other or take a walk go out just to take out the dogs. If you have a pet, you can go out, but, you know, for a limited amount of time and you have to be close, as close as possible to your house or apartment and so on and so forth. It has been almost a, like house arrest, in a sense, if you like, uh, with a little bit more freedom than that. But uh, yeah. this is what they have been doing. He has been, uh, so far, um, he has been working in certain areas where they were able, in the Veneto area, he has worked rather well. Know if people comply more or if there is more enforcement, there was more enforcement on there. But uh, uh, maybe both. And uh, in uh, in certain towns where uh, there were lots of cases, uh, for uh, a few numbers of days now, they had zero cases like it happened in China. Hmm. Uh, in Lombardy, the situation is still, uh, because of course there are many offices that are still uh, open or many people when you have a dense population of course when you say only 40 percent of transportation will work you still have a number of people working when you say that the banks are open but only uh, certain times or whatever you still have a number of people who have to go to work it depends on the, how, how many inhabitants there are in an area of course and so uh, in those areas the shutdown is showing the lack of contact is definitely showing some uh, improvement but there's still a uh, number you get a sense that there's that is effective in some ways. Um, the question, I guess, which we shift into here, which we've already shifted into, I suppose, across yeah. the board, is an economic question. Uh, yeah. Is is to follow on the heels of this, right? So, <clears throat> in particular, people who are one forced to work. Um, still have to go and put themselves in danger in that sense. But then yes. those who are forced to stay home uh, are now, you know, bankrupt or, you know, cannot pay bills, et cetera. These are not unique to Italy, of course, but surely must be showing uh, pretty terribly yes. there as oh, well. Oh, it is showing. It is showing Lombardy, of course. Venice. The north of Italy is the most productive part of Italy, of course. If the north of Italy were going to be separated from Italy, it would be the richest country in Europe, richer than Germany, in terms mm. of production, in terms of GDP, and so on and so forth. Uh, so we are talking about the uh, most productive part of Italy. So definitely that it's eating. So Fiat, Chrysler closing factories throughout Italy for two weeks uh, affects just that alone. And so uh, even if you think in terms of, uh, I mean, just, just to give you one name in Milan, I mean, Pirelli, the Pirelli factory, Pirelli tires factory, mm-hmm, which mm-hmm. doesn't make only tires. Of course, they make lots of things, but they're famous for the tires. I mean, that alone is a huge, uh, so that closing that factory for two weeks, three weeks, you can only imagine the, the economic effect on, on the area. But of course, the issue is the government actually in Italy has taken, I was just reading through the degree that 
has been proposed and partially approved so far. It needs to go to the Senate and to the House um, and has proposed very generous, a very generous package. That this is everybody who has one employee, even one single employee who has been forced to shut down, that couldn't keep it open because it was not considered a necessary business in a sense, something that needed to be open throughout the shutdown. Um, so uh, even one, uh, even if you have one employee, the government will... Uh, uh, pay for the uh, furlough of the, and so they will, the employees will be paid not the full salaries in the meantime, but they will be paid, you know, like a furlough pay, basically, but the government will pay that. And so for a big factory, of course, that would be, that's a great relief. And the other thing is the government is still debating whether or not they are going to, how do you help a small business? I mean, a barber shop that had to close because couldn't see anybody. Well, if you, or, 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 a, or, a, or a bar or, you know, a coffee shop. Mm-hmm. In Italy, coffee shop and bar are the same thing. We mm-hmm. don't have the liquor store difference. So, so if you close a coffee shop and a bar in Italy for a month, of course, uh, in a small town, that those people may not have the capability to, to start again, right. and start anew. And so they are debating whether or not to take three months off of uh, taxation. And so that would be, in some cases, even generous because it can be even more than they would have made in terms of uh, gaining a month. But of course, that's necessary because, of course, in a coffee shop, you may be family run, but you may have a large one in which you have three or four employees, the barista, this and that. Imagine Starbucks, for instance. And, um, and so, of course, you need, uh, you need more financial help. This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is Of Pandemics and Panopticons. And our guest for this segment is Andrea Sicarelli, a professor at Indiana University who has relatives who are doctors in the Milan area and whose brother and family live in Rome, Italy. Imagine only the tourists. I was just reading the numbers of tourists. Up to now, the number of people who have traveled in 2020 is comparable to 1964. Wow. That is, we went back more than 50 years. <laughs> wow. In 1964, as you know very well, only businessmen or rich people traveled. Right, right, right. Or migrants because they traveled for one, once in their life. That's it. That was it. Yeah, yeah. There was no, you know, mass tourism or anything. So only from that point of view, you can only imagine what cities like Florence, Rome, Naples, Venice. I mean, I don't need to say that the damage that has been done. Just think about museums, which are always on the verge of uh, failing anyhow, (laughs) in the sense that it's always a difficult business. I mean, museums that have been basically, that haven't sold the ticket in in a month and that they won't sell tickets for who knows how long. Uh, They have, imagine the museums like a national museum, like the Uffizi Gallery in Florence, or the archaeological museum, one of the archaeological museums in Rome or Naples. We are talking about hundreds of employees there that are state employees that are paid and that we pay the regular salaries. Now, they, I don't believe they can, I mean, they shouldn't be fired, of course, but unfortunately for them, they cannot be fired because they are state employees, and so federal employees is much more difficult. But, uh, of course, uh, the money has to come from special pools to pay those salaries, right? right? I mean, to pay, imagine the expenses a museum like that has to maintain the artwork. And this is just an example. That's amazing. Sure. It doesn't mean that museums are more important than, than people. This is just an example to say how much money we're talking about. I know you also interviewed recently Fadine uh, Iran and the idea of separatism and so on and so forth. Of course, you know, he claims that separatism is always bad, and I agree with him. At the same time, at the same time, in this case, I may disagree with him, for instance, in the case of uh, coronavirus, 
if we are able, if we are able to prevent something like this, if we were able to prevent something like this, and I think we, sh- we should be able to prevent something like this, not to prevent a virus uh, that you cannot prevent, but you can prevent the spreading of a virus. And of course, here we can be polemical, you know, we can, we can start a polemic or not. And like, when a government discovers something like that is happening, should intervene right away. And of course, if you try to keep it a secret, even for two weeks, it's too late. Now, I'm not saying that China did that, or Italy did that, or the United States did that, or whatever did, whoever did that. Probably somebody did that. In the face, it's always difficult to say right away, okay, you know what, ladies and gentlemen, we, are, we have a, a, an epidemic situation here. We should all do this, otherwise this is going to become a world problem. When we do that, that is always too late. You see the fire always <laughs> when it started, unfortunately. Right, right. So in a sense, I think this could teach us that we should be more cooperative, Stopping flights doesn't mean anything. That separation is good if it is for temporary health reasons and not because of any political or any or any social matter. And so there, I agree. At the same time, we may learn a lesson from here because, of course, in Italy, for instance, it was difficult. It is always difficult to be in other people's shoes because I, I don't know what I would have done <laughs> had I been the Italian prime minister, of course, yeah. if I had started, you know, it's, it's always difficult to make a decision like that. Um, but uh, clearly, a couple of weeks make a big difference. So this is something that we may learn for the future, that we thought we had learned after the SAR, you know, the other coronavirus. But of course, uh, as Pirandello, the Italian playwriter, say, fortunately, human beings get distracted soon, <laughs> very easily. <laughs> so, and yeah. so we tend to, in, yeah. a, in a few months, if we talk again, we won't be talking about coronavirus. Right. Uh, we talk about that. Yeah. So yeah. we hope not. The positive we can see from here is that people are rediscovering that you don't need to be. Yes, you can use technology, but because you're using technology, you don't let technology using you. So people are beginning. You know, people are talking to each other. Family, people, parents, and children, or friends who are talking to each other rather than just uh, uh, just being connected to a cell phone and isolated uh, while being at a bus stop uh, from the rest of the other. People and so on and so forth. So they a little bit of sense from that point of view. And I'm not being here like in the sense of patriotism or things like these things. They say that in Italy at 6 p.m. people are showing up on the balconies or the windows of the cities singing songs all together or whatever. Okay, true or not. But the point is, I, I, it can be considered a little bit pathetic, if you like, in the, in the Aristotelian sense, of course, um, but uh, or tribalistic. But at the same time, of course, I'm not talking about this as possibly, but that is, but that there is a sense that we need to communicate more to each other. Uh, uh, Italians are very gadget-oriented, for instance. So people don't realize how gadget-oriented Italian has. If there is a new a new something, Italians will buy it right away. <laughs> and everybody will love it, from the poorest one to the richest one. And maybe this, this thing make, made us think a little bit closer about, and more closely about, regaining humanity, in mm-hmm. a sense. So the separation is bad. At the same time, the separation made us feel about, you know, we felt how being separated is not good, and therefore what should we do not to be separated? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that's <laughs> what good. is a non-separated society? And there, of course, it's complicated. I mean, what is how we, le- how we live in anyhow, anyhow, before coronavirus, we live in a separate society anyhow, and we just didn't realize. You can never hold back string. It's time for a break. This is Tom Waits with You Can Never Hold Back Spring. Stay with us for more on pandemics and panopticons when Interchange returns. The blushing rose that will climb 
to Interchange for the second part of On Pandemics and Panopticons. We're joined by Ian Allen Paul, an artist and theorist whose work examines instantiations of power and practices of resistance in global contexts. We begin by discussing a recent essay called Corona Reboot, which examines the way the capitalist mode of organizing can put the pandemic to work for the sake of profit. That spring can bring. It's a kind of paradoxical moment, um, in a sense, because it, uh, you know, in a way that the virus uh, operates almost as a as a kind of general strike, right? It's just the kind of uh, global suspension of the of the economy, not under the terms that we would have wanted, of course, but it, it nonetheless creates a context under which this kind of historical progress of capitalism has been, you know, definitively kind of interrupted in this moment, right? Even though, again, it, it, it's not under the terms of kind of worker organization or these kinds of things, it nonetheless, I think, kind of offers us all an opportunity to really rethink uh, through kind of the logic of work and the logic of profit and all these kinds of things. And in this kind of slowing down, reconsider just, just very fundamental things about the way we live, how we spend our time, uh, what's expected of us, uh, et cetera. Yeah, it's a dangerous time too, though. It's a key key aspect of your piece, uh, again, is that this is an opportunity, as all things seem to be, an opportunity for capitalism and state power as well. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, this is a point I, I borrow from from the philosopher Michel Foucault, who, you know, who wrote a lot about actually the plague and um, really kind of thought through how the plague became an opportunity for governments in particular to institute all new kinds of kind of disciplinary measures. So uh, thinking about surveillance of neighborhoods and kind of various controls of the population and things like this. And the, the plague historically was the moment in which this kind of new, this new kind of governmentality uh, came to be. And I think, yeah, in this moment, we also need to be very, very aware that even though we're kind of in this interlude of the pandemic is, is kind of what I call it, that we nonetheless might see um, all these new forms of control emerging you know, we've we've lived in a historical moment where we've been seeing many new kinds of control emerge around NSA surveillance and all these new kinds of digital forms of uh, governing and power. But I think now we're seeing so many new measures uh, roll out almost by the day that there's a real danger that that these new kinds of digital technologies and network technologies could really be kind of instituted in a way that it'll organize our society. And I think we need to be very, very attentive to that and, and also kind of imagine what forms of resistance might might look like in response to that. Uh, one of the things you say about this, and you just mentioned it a bit there, I suppose, is the the kind of forms of digital subjectivity that, that are creating what you call two kinds of uh, mutually constitutive subjectivities. You want to talk about those? So maybe I'll try to describe what I wrote very quickly. Um, sure. But then I also want to provide a, a, a slight kind of elaboration because, you know, um, since writing it and kind of putting it out there, um, I've thought a little bit more about 
kind of the way that there might be some problems in framing it this way. Let's just put sure, it that way. Right. So, so on the one hand, you know, I think many of us right now are having this experience of being stuck at home and being in various states of kind of self-quarantine and something that's immediately accompanied that. And that's certainly in, in, you know, my experience as a kind of university professor is that they close the university and then immediately um, they expect you to start working online. Right? <laughs> and so yeah. it actually is, you know, it's not a missed opportunity at all. There's been this uh, kind of long kind of historical pressure to move people to teach online because it's more profitable and uh, for the university, et cetera. And so universities in particular seem to be seizing upon this moment to institute new forms of digital labor and kind of reorganize the way we think about education um, online. And of course, this is happening across many, many different kinds of uh, industries and, and parts of the economy. It's not just people in education, of course. And so we see this mass migration to kind of pushing people to labor online um, instead of in their offices, et cetera. And so this in, a, in the piece I call the, the domesticated connected subject, right? The person that is expected to kind of stay at home and, uh, you know, maintain their distance from society, but at the same time, stay connected to the digital economy. Of course, that's out of a certain practical necessity um, in, in the kind of immediacies of, of uh, the, the pandemic that we're in. The reason that I think it's important, again, to track is that I think that this could be uh, part of kind of the reorganization of the way we think about work on a very fundamental level, and that we could think about this this kind of reorganization of labor as, as really outlasting the pandemic and as being a new structure of the, of the economy. And then and the, the second uh, subjectivity that's paired to the first is, of course, the figure that has to kind of reproduce the domestic situation. And so, of course, if all of us are staying home and are not going out and are not interacting with the world, there's this kind of second class of precarious uh, subjects, which, in fact, instead of being kind of decelerated and, and not moving around anymore, come to move at incredible speeds, right? So these are the delivery workers and the trash collectors and the uh, ambulance drivers and all these people who now are expected to never stop moving and, you know, really to their own peril, having to uh, expose themselves to the virus potentially, uh, but also to deal with, you know, unprecedented demands uh, to do more orders, uh, to uh, keep up with new schedules, etc. And of course, this is equally like the, the condition of possibility of, of so much of this kind of Amazon uh, economy is that it can be kind of distributed across many, many different kinds of networked delivery drivers and people on bikes, etc. And so the digital labor that's happening in the home gets connected to this kind of digital precarious labor on the street. In the immediacy of, of the pandemic, and as you know, it feels like every day is a year now, <laughs> there's uh, so much happening. Um, but we can already see that these two kinds of subject positions are really, really really coming to define a lot of the ways that we think about economic life. The, the caveat I want to say, and the, the thing I didn't think I expressed clearly enough in the piece, is that, of course, this is a kind of characterization of life in the metropolis in particular. So this is a kind of urban depiction of what's happening in the course of the pandemic. And the, a third subject position that, that we might characterize as being necessarily related to these other two it's just the the kind of abandoned subject, you know, the person that basically has no life in the digital economy, either cannot work from home or cannot work in, in this kind of precarious mobile position and is just kind of left to fend them for themselves and, you know, by whatever means necessary. And so hmm. I think that really characterizes a lot of the response where you're not seeing really any relief or attention paid to kind of how people are going to survive economically um, that aren't able to kind of transform their labor digitally. Um, and so I think that's Certainly the case for, for many in kind of the working class in the United States, but, but it's even more so the case in, in the global South and these other places that, uh, where they don't have uh, this kind of network economy really instantiated. So I think it's a kind of a three part structure and, uh, we'll, we'll see how it kind of elaborates, but I think we're already at a point where this, this is becoming a new kind of normal in the pandemic. The first one domesticated, uh, connected, um, 
seems, uh, I suppose, uh, protected in some ways by their economic function, I think, uh, at the same time as as being integrated in their separation, I think, is a term you you might have used in there. Um, And the second one being sort of exposed to the pandemic and by their economic function. Um, And I suppose the, the abandoned ones being left for dead. That's right. I mean, it's a, you know, I think when we talk about uh, the management of populations as like a concern of politics, this is what we call, you know, biopolitics. Um, Typically, we thought of this as like the organization of care. So we thought about, you know, who deserves health insurance, who deserves what kind of health insurance, you know, how much money are we going to give to hospitals nationally? And, you know, if we do, it's a kind of calculation, right? So if we Mm -hmm. give certain kinds of funding, certain numbers of people will die, etc. This is like a part of how we think about biopolitics and a lot of people, how people thought about sovereignty um, in general in the 20th and early 21st century. Um, but now I think, you know, as others have written, we might be seeing a kind of transformation uh, occurring where it's less about this idea of kind of caring for the population and what it means to try to preserve or let live. And and the paradigm might be shifting to something on the lines of kind of what it means to kind of let die or to neglect or to abandon. <laughs> This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is on pandemics and panopticons, and our guest for part two is artist and theorist Ian Allen Paul. We're discussing his recent thinking on the way capitalism and state power is already making moves to instrumentalize the responses to COVID-19 and the ways we might come together to reimagine new modes of living. One of the interesting things here, too, is, uh, and this has been going on for some time, um, but now it's, uh, as you say, ramped up so that every every day is a, a, a it seems like a decade of of time has passed. But the idea of uh, not having labor sites anymore, you know, we don't work anywhere in particular. So as uh, you call this a deterritorialization of labor, so loss of sites of labor and so sites of dissent as well, sites of participation, sites of collective being. We're going to have to figure out new ways to be together to a, to sort of stand against these things. Yeah, that's right. And I think um, that's the kind of historical moment we're in. And so, you know, if we think of this moment as kind of the moment of control of kind of the instantiation of digital control, um, we need new kinds of resistance that we can imagine in that space. You know, I think if before we had lived in a kind of disciplinary society where, for example, the organization of the economy happened in the factory and your economic life occurred within this confined space, you know, we have this whole kind of uh, routine way of thinking about what resistance looks like in that context, uh, the strike, the work stoppage, uh, sabotage, these other kinds of things that have occurred historically. Uh, but for digital forms of control, we still have very few models of resistance, I think, at this stage. And so that, I think, is one of our central tasks, right? I, I think you mentioned before this idea of the domesticated, connected subject as being the kind of privileged subject in this circumstance, and that's absolutely right. I mean, I think they're the ones that are going to kind of economically succeed in this new context. Uh, but nonetheless, that that subject is also kind of immersed in all these new forms of control. Precisely when the home becomes the place of work and the place of kind of economic production, it also becomes a new site of surveillance and a new site of kind of control. And so we're already seeing in Israel and in Italy in particular, I think they're already uh, doing mass surveillance of um, cell phone locations, kind of making sure that people are maintaining their their self quarantines in their home. And if you mm-hmm. you know if they see your cell phone going out of where you live, um, you'll get text messages telling you to report to the hospital and things like this. And I know there's been discussions of doing this in the United States as well, though it hasn't happened yet. Um, with applications that that involve working from home, uh, this also involves typically surveillance of everything you're doing on your computer. <laughs> so you know, right. there's uh, some dystopian examples I was reading about where some of these kind of work work from home applications, where you kind of you know telecommute or whatever, um, even do things like take regular pictures from your webcam 
around to make sure you're mm. sitting at your computer and you're not, you know, cooking lunch or whatever. So, you know, it's a, it, it's a kind of instantiation, a, a reorganization of the way we think about how work is controlled and how work is organized. And so, um, yeah, in a moment where we can't necessarily kind of gather in the streets anymore or shut down a factory in a strike or, or this kind of thing, um, it's really a moment that requires a, a new imagination of resistance and a new imagination of solidarity in particular. Well, let's shift then, um, or I guess let's let's look into ways in which we can think about that resistance. You've written a piece called 10 Premises for a Pandemic. Uh, and I like something you say within that that piece as well, You the intention to uh, hopefully work to render capitalism and the state obsolete. Uh, so let's dive into those now too. Uh, so number one, and I'll paraphrase some of these and you can, you can give some uh, description and meat, I suppose, to them as well. Uh, number one is that a pandemic is a social relation mediated by viruses. Uh, and I suppose uh, numbers two through 10 kind of unpack that a little more fully. But what do you mean by that? That that kind of argument is an attempt to politicize uh, the pandemic. And what I mean by that is not not to kind of instrumentalize it or, or, you know, just use it as a tool, but to really understand that the pandemic isn't something that simply happens to us or or that we are all kind of somehow equally victims of this kind of natural disaster that's occurring, uh, but rather to kind of insist that the pandemic is is actually produced or, or that the effects rather of the pandemic uh, really depend on how we kind of behave and decide to act together in this moment. And so rather than understand the pandemic as just a kind of inevitable thing that's occurring, uh, it's really our, I think, political and ethical responsibility to really understand how the ways that we choose to live our lives now um, will actually change history and will change the way the pandemic unfolds. And I think that we we really have to take that seriously. Uh, number two, uh, because we're in a state of suspension, we ought to take this opportunity to question the world prior to the pandemic, uh, you know, look at where we've come from. Yeah, that's right. Um, so, you know, um, this this actually isn't entirely uh, unique to the pandemic, but this kind of suspension of social and political and economic norms um, is something that people in power often do uh, when they want to kind of defend power. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, uh, September 11th is the kind of paradigmatic example of this, where, you know, the argument goes that in order to defend democracy, we need to kind of suspend all of the rights of democracy, right? And so this is the logic of things like the Patriot Act and everything else that um, we kind of can suspend uh, suspend the regime of rights and respend, suspend the regime of politics in order to defend these things. And we're, we're obviously in, in a similar moment today where um, the kind of, you know, uh, everyday order of our society has been entirely thrown out the window in, in an effort to kind of make sure that on the other side of the pandemic, we still have the same kind of political system and same social system. And so I think for us, the, this is a this is a unique opportunity in the sense that uh, if if it's the case that these things are kind of arbitrary, like if it's the case that these things are historical and have been produced in a particular way and can be suspended in, in this way, uh, as we have in the pandemic, then it's kind of on us again to to understand that uh, we can produce the world in a different way. Um, mm -hmm. That kind of system of representative democracy that we have and the economic system of capitalism are not the only possible systems of, of living. And even though they, they may seem like inescapable and may seem like there's no alternative, um, when they're suspended in this way in these times of crisis, it kind of exposes how other ways of living are possible. Again, it's it's not to romanticize the pandemic. I think it's important that we don't romanticize this period, um, but it is nonetheless crucial that we understand that uh, this reveals um, the way in which we can, we can live differently. It's time for our final break. This is All Stripped Down, another from Tom Waits. Stay with us for more of On Pandemics and Panopticons when Interchange returns. Thank you. 
Back to Interchange. For our final segment of On Pandemics and Panopticons, artist and theorist Ian Allen Paul continues to discuss his recent piece, Ten Premises for a Pandemic. We start with the current capitalist state failures of preparation and response. Well, there is a sense that uh, as we are not being taken care of in the way that we might expect as citizens of a particular state, um, we recognize the state failures, lack of tests, lack of masks, gloves, hospital beds, the failure of capitalism to prepare uh, or want to prepare or care to prepare for this kind of thing. We have an opportunity to organize mutual aid, solidarity and care. That's number three. It's becoming clear already in the, the way the politics are moving that that throughout this pandemic, um, the priority is to defend profit and to defend corporations. Um, and so you see most of the political debate uh, kind of unfolding in, in terms of how to bail out corporations already and this kind of thing. And, and very little attention being paid to actually what it would mean to prioritize life and to prioritize keeping as many people alive uh, through this kind of pandemic that we're all experiencing. If capitalism is kind of organizing in that way to defend profit um, which is which is what capital does then it's it's upon us to to insist that we we organize society with different priorities and kind of exit from this logic of capital the economy is is, is one more thing that we can call into question in this moment failures uh, like that are failures of this organization around so-called market economies and it's uh, something we can recognize that we have to consciously uh, choose not to let uh, Amazon remake us in its image. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you know, again, if, if you're looking for winners in the situation, I mean, Amazon is unquestionably at the top. <laughs> and, um, you know, Amazon had already been kind of reorganizing the economy in, in very significant ways and now is doing so at a, at a really kind of shocking scale and speed. And so, you know, if we want a society that, that doesn't look like a endless Amazon warehouses and delivery drivers, and then, yeah, we need to really think about how we're going to meet our needs in in another fashion. I think because we live in a capitalist society, I think we think about solving the crises through capitalist means. And so, you know, again, returning to this question of subjectivity, for those of us that are all stuck at home, uh, it's really easy just to click, you know, buy more toilet paper on Amazon and, you know, not really think about the consequences of that or who's going to bring it to us or um, et cetera. And if we want a different kind of social relation that prioritizes care over who has access to resources and who can afford to care for themselves, then, then we need to think beyond the kind of logic of things like Amazon in this moment. Yeah, you talk about next the ideas of these, uh, these ideas of care, networks of care and solidarity that we have to think about in our own backyard, so to speak, local 
ideas, local expressions of care and solidarity. Uh, that is assuming, as you say, we turn away from Netflix and Amazon for the moment uh, and walk out our front door and think about how to how to assist in our communities. But even if we do that, we also have to recognize that we have to ex- extend those bonds, multiply those bonds uh, into other other kinds of communities. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, this 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 is a really important critique, I think, because it, it goes so deeply into our ways of life um, in the sense that, you know, in our society, we are taught to kind of think and act and experience the world uh, primarily as individuals. Right. And so particularly in a capitalist economy, we think about our own economic well-being and our own ability to survive and have a good life as really dependent on our own individual actions. And as long as we're responsible and we work hard and et cetera, we'll have a nice life, right? This is like a very individualistic way of understanding the world. And what the pandemic really exposes is that that this is totally illusory, right? <laughs> this idea that the world is an individual world and kind of reveals how our ability to survive and our ability to live uh, lives worth living uh, really always depend on other people, you know, and that the foundation for a politics of the pandemic, but just a foundation for politics in general, might be better oriented around questions of vulnerability and interdependency rather than this idea of kind of rugged uh, individualism. It's interesting, for example, how debates around healthcare have shifted so radically in this period, where you even have people on the right wing starting to talk about things like universal healthcare, uh, just because of the simple kind of irrefutable fact that, you know, like in a pandemic, you're really only as safe as the, the least insured person. As long as there's someone that's not cared for and doesn't have access to a hospital, they have the potential to become sick and to infect people, etc. Um, that kind of points to the need to, to really care for one another as a foundation for politics and not to assume that everyone on their own is, is the best way to organize society. Yeah, well, that leads to obviously the idea that we, we, we kind of um, you know, have to cast back into this idea of commons. The the idea is, though, that we do have to imagine commons. We have to, you know, imagine that you are not an individual, that all things are integrated in a way. Um, not that everything is a part of everything necessarily, but rather that we have to be aware of our interdependencies in such a way that we, we pay attention to them. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of the reasons that 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 idea of commons is so hard to even think is because you know we live in a society in which everything is public or private right and so either there's private ownership and someone or some corporate entity owns it or it's public which means you know in in the united states that the the government operates it and the government manages it and so the commons is is neither of those things right it's something that is kind of organized by the people that have relations to it or responsibilities to it um so it's something that that is kind of radically democratic that doesn't rely upon the mediation of, of a kind of capitalist economy, nor on the mediation of a, of a state, for example. And that's precisely what we need in this kind of moment, something that uh, provides for people's needs. And and like you said, kind of is organized on the basis of, of our inter- interdependency, this kind of really, really fundamental realization that, that my own capacity to live a fulfilling life uh, depends on other people also having fulfilled lives, right? I don't disagree with you. It's certainly arguable from a perspective or a reactionary or right-wing perspective that lives are made better because you make use of other people. Yeah, that's right. I mean, again, this is a, a very kind of normal way of thinking about life <laughs> in our in our present moment, right? This idea that that lives can be used as means towards particular kinds of ends, right? That, that lives can be instruments and instrumentalized. And um, right. yeah, I think we need, we need a radical uh, critique of that in this moment. 
This is Interchange on WFHB. Our show is on pandemics and panopticons, and our guest for part two is artist and theorist Ian Allen Paul. We're discussing his recent thinking on the way capitalism and state power is already making moves to instrumentalize the responses to COVID-19 and the ways we might come together to reimagine new modes of living. Now, you also, and I like this point quite a bit, and I've, I'm, I know I've left, left off numbering, but I think that's okay. But one, one point you, you make is that we, we really have to uh, um, oppose those who intend to further instantiate already existing forms of domination. And you use the word militantly, and I appreciate that as well. But at the same time, you recognize to make a change, you do have to, I suppose, as hard as possible, negate the existing forms that have have brought us to this world in the first place that's a very tall order yeah yeah i think that's right and it's something that's that's sobering um and and should be thought seriously precisely for that reason you know and this is a you know it's not that the subject of the whole essay but i thought it was it was important to include in there for that reason in the sense that it's not actually helpful to just be blanketly kind of utopian in a sense and to talk about how we want society to be as if that were enough. Um, it's, it's actually really perhaps more important that we emphasize this uh, possibility of resistance and understand what it means to undo the kind of present forms of domination, which arguably are, are kind of intensifying in this moment. And, you know, just uh, just to throw out a very clear example of this, that presently in the United States, there's a large shortage of uh, breathing masks that uh, can be used by physicians and uh, ambulance drivers and, and all these people that need to be protected from the virus. But you already see the Immigrations and Customs Enforcement uh, receiving large uh, deliveries of, of these breathing masks so they can uh, continue to carry out uh, immigration raids and things like this across the country and detain undocumented people. So much of what we're talking about, this kind of different way of organizing politics, there, there are, of course, uh, people on the far right that are engaging in precise the same conversation, but just on different terms, right? Uh, the pandemic uh, will finally be an opportunity to uh, institute more ethno-nationalist policies and to finally get rid of immigrants and to uh, do away with the poor and all these kinds of things. And so um, it's not enough just to just to say that, oh, this is the this is an opportunity for us to have a new way of life. It's also important to understand that this is irrevocably a political question <laughs> and that, you know, our idea of how society should be organized is going to come into conflict with these different visions of society that that uh you know not to be not to be too pessimistic but but those are the people that are presently in power the task uh, couldn't be larger in that sense yeah. yeah i think that's an important point that i i never hear enough of really it's uh, it's not utopian to dream or vi- you know to have visions of the future you want to live many other people are doing that exact same thing in ways that are nightmarish and so it is important to to struggle and make yourself heard in groups that also have a similar vision, and hopefully it's um, it's one that can combat the narrow and uh, reactionary vision that seems to be in the ascendancy right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think this is defined politics uh, in North America, at least for for a significant amount of time now. That yeah. uh, most people are not doing so great, you know. Right. And yeah. um, and in that kind of situation, uh, there's not, you know, just kind of a status quo that that people are going to hold on to. And so, yeah. in a moment where people are really not just desiring, but actually needing alternatives, like they need various kinds of social transformation to happen. We need to be willing and able to to offer those kinds of visions of, of different kinds of societies and different kinds of living. Because as you said, you know, the right wing is certainly engaged in that project. Yeah. And, you know, arguably Trump is a manifestation of that. 
The uh, one of the things you point out too is that you know if, if pandemics, climate change, etc., uh, don't respect borders, you know why are we respecting them? Yeah, um, you know that that's particularly accentuated in in the present, but I think also is kind of generally applicable that um, that so many of the uh, challenges we face are of a planetary scale, and so if we are serious in our desire to have different kinds of society, we also need to think and organize with people um, on that scale. And so that necessarily involves um, uh, organizing across borders, organizing with people that are in incredibly different situations than ours, and trying to understand how, um, you know, really bold, really daring forms of solidarity are required um, of this moment, you know? I mean, I think this is one of the, I mean, speaking personally, uh, this is something that was quite clear uh, from the Arab Spring, you know, these the mm -hmm. series, series of revolutions that once they kind of toppled these uh, dictators, um, a very clear limit was realized uh, in those moments that there were actually much larger kind of international systems that were upholding this this form of society, you know. So in Egypt, when they kicked the dictator out, um, the, the U.S., for example, was very willing to step in and kind of assist the Egyptian military and make sure that, you know, like the situation kind of went back to normal. And right. so... You know, as as those kinds of situations reveal, um, the things that we're kind of interested in doing um, are incredibly good at organizing on planetary scales. You know, capitalism and the kind of uh, international organization of of law. And so, um, if we're interested in doing these things, we really do have to think about how how we act in solidarity. Um, not only with Europe, for example, where, you know, U.S. radicals are very used to thinking about themselves in relation to European radical projects, but more importantly, uh, in the global south, where, um, uh, you know, that kind of political movement across borders will be absolutely necessary. Well, let's uh, let's blend the last two together. They're generally about imagination. It's the best time now uh, for imagination, invention and experimentation in this struggle. I don't think there could be a more essential time to do it. Yeah, that's right. And I mean, I think uh, what I what I meant to try to emphasize at the end of that piece was very much that, you know, that this kind of radical liberatory politics, in a way, is always kind of speculative in the sense that it's always trying to imagine, you know, what presently doesn't exist. And I think that is actually an incredibly promising thing <laughs> that, that we need to kind of cultivate that and take that as a kind of serious political project, this idea that we need to be uh, experimenting in the sense that we need to be putting things into practice that we we're not quite sure how they will kind of operate in the world, but the only way to know um, how they will unfold is to actually start putting them into practice. And on the other hand, you know, trying to envision uh, new kinds of society that in a way are kind of impossible to imagine because of the world we live in. You know, this is like a, a common critique of utopian politics, this idea that, oh, you can you can kind of critique the system, but you can't actually tell me kind of what what will follow, <laughs> you know, like what will follow capitalism in precise detail or something like this. And I think actually it's important that we accept that critique and just say, you're right, like this is actually something that we cannot articulate, um, but that this is actually a promising thing, right? That uh, yeah. this is something that we dedicate um, ourselves to kind of immersing ourselves in this process of collective change and of emancipation and understanding that as, you know, a risk and a speculation and a wager that we all kind of agree to, to go through together. And I think that's necessary if we want real kind of qualitative change. <laughs> That's our show. We'll close as we open with Winston Mankuku Nungozi. This is Before the Rain and After. Thanks to Andrea Ciccarelli and Ian Allen Paul for sharing their insights with us today. Thank you for listening. Take this time to stand up and question the systems that continue to fail nearly all of us on the planet and yet insist on being our only hope. There are other ways. I'm Doug Storm. I produce Interchange. Sean Milligan shared the editing work with me. Kate Young is executive producer. 
This is WFHB, Bloomington's community radio station. Thank you.